We're starting this morning a new series in the book of Romans. So if you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 1. And we're just going to read the first seven verses, Romans 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 7. That's page 939 in the church Bibles. Just as you're turning that up, page 939, um, let me say that We've got two more weeks left in this building before we move to our new venue, the Faversham. At the new venue, we don't have any storage, so we're not going to be able to bring kind of 100 Bibles along on a Sunday. So um, if, you, if you're a regular here, if you could bring your own Bible, we'll bring some spares for, for newcomers and people who forget. Um, but if you can bring your Bible from a, a couple of weeks' time onwards, two more weeks, and then the new venue. So Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The summer of 386, the year 386, a young man in his early 30s, uh, he'd grown up, in a Christian family, or at least he had a Christian mother who'd prayed for him for years and years and years. But he'd walked away from the faith entirely, and he'd walked away spectacularly. Uh, he'd left home. He'd got involved in kind of gangs who spent their time, what you could perhaps politely call in, uh, with wine, women, and song. Uh, he was off the rails. He was gifted. He was bright. He was talented. But he was as far away from the kingdom as you could imagine. Uh, so much so that he was living with one particular prostitute who he'd sort of taken as his uh, concubine. They'd had a, a son together, but they hadn't married. His career was going quite well academically. He'd become, I guess, what we might call a university professor. But his heart was far from the Lord. And he was unsettled, brilliant, living a, a, the life of Riley, but unsettled. And he walked into a garden, sat down, and he began to weep, began to cry. And then he heard some children over the wall singing a little, a little kind of nursery rhyme. Uh, and uh, the, the repeated phrase was, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. This young man picked up the scriptures. In fact, picked up this book of Romans and read a phrase from Romans 13. And in his words, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded my heart, all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. He became a believer. He trusted in Jesus and all the anxiety flooded, he says, from my heart. About 1,100 years later, another young man, very different from the first. This young man was incredibly religious. He believed in God. He knew himself to be a sinner and he was therefore terrified of God. The question kept on nagging away at him. Have I done enough? Do I love God enough? Do I really love God? 
Am I holy enough? When I pray, are they, are they real prayers or am I just speaking? He would try harder and harder. So much so he became a monk, but still no peace. He would confess his sins. Children, you might know that in those days, it was the days of, uh, at least in Europe, uh, where everybody was Roman Catholic. There was only really one church. And you would go and confess your sins to a priest, as they called them. He would go in, confess his sins, walk out, realize he'd sinned straight away, and walk straight back in again until he drove his confessor absolutely mad. No peace. Until he started teaching from the book of Romans. One verse in chapter one. The righteous shall live by faith. This place in Paul, said this young man, became to me truly the gate to paradise. And he found peace. A third young man, third and final, I promise. A third young man, another 300 or so years later. 24th of May, 1738, a young man who went very unwillingly, in his own words, to a a room, an upstairs room in Aldergate in London, where some sort of keen Christian friends of his uh, were gathering. Uh, This young man actually had been doing missionary work in the USA, going to the pagans out in America. Uh, He'd been out there for two years, but again had no peace. Uh, And this room, this upper room in Aldergate, Uh, One of his friends began to read from Martin Luther, who was the second of the men I just mentioned. His commentary, his introduction, in fact, to the commentary on the book uh, of Romans. At that moment, says John Wesley, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. My heart was strangely warmed. Three men, Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Wesley. One of the greatest theologians the church has ever known, one of the greatest reformers, and one of the greatest evangelists and missionaries. All brought to faith through this book of Romans. And of course, there are millions and millions more men, women, and children down the centuries whose names are forgotten to history, but known to the Lord God because of this book. In many ways, it is the the jewel in the crown of Paul's letters. All scripture, all his letters are God-breathed. But the church down the centuries has has recognized that that Romans, in many ways, is is Paul's fullest explanation of the gospel. There's a reason why they put it straight after the gospels and acts. It's not the earliest of Paul's letters. Galatians was written earlier, Thessalonians likely. But it is in some ways the jewel in the crown. Martin Luther said in that commentary um, that brought Wesley to faith this epistle this letter an epistle is a letter children is really the chief part of the New Testament and is the purest gospel it's worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word by heart how about that but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul we can never read it or ponder over it too much for the more we deal with it the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes That is a huge wrap, isn't it? That's a huge write-up. You might say Luther is overdoing it. Perhaps he is. All scripture is God's word, as I keep saying. But it is an incredible letter, and it's therefore a letter we we should approach, and I certainly approach, with some intimidation. Excitement, but intimidation. I've never preached it before. Um, You hear loads of ministers say, don't preach it too young. And I I may have gone early. Um, 
But let's, yeah, let's approach this letter with great excitement, but humbly as well. Uh, there are depths and vistas to it uh, that are simply stunning. And so please do pray f- for me as I preach, and Nick as he preaches too, and pray for ourselves as we look at it over these next uh, few weeks. I want to ask just three questions by way of introduction this morning uh, to get us going as we look at the first seven verses. First question is this, who will we be hearing from? Who will we be hearing from? This is verses one and two. At first glance, it seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Children, the way people wrote letters in the olden days is different to the way we write them. We start by writing, dear Frank, and then we write the whole letter. And then right at the bottom, we say lots of love from Jim. But in a way, that's a bit of a silly way to write, isn't it? Because you want to know who, who you're hearing from early, don't you? And so old letters, special Bible letters, are written more like emails, You know when you receive an email who it's from straight away because it's at the top, isn't it? So here is Paul writing to the church in Rome. Paul, who describes himself as a servant. Now, that is a polite word for what he calls himself, really. Uh, The word, you can see it in the footnote, it's really a slave. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm a man who has a master. I'm not my own. I'm a man under authority. You can see why the the translators into English have changed it to servant, because slave in our minds obviously has connotations of some of the horrors of more recent history. But when Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ Jesus, he's actually giving himself a a title that is picked up in the Old Testament time and time again by some of the, the great figures that God used. Abraham was the servant, the slave of God. David was the servant, the slave of God. The prophets very often describe themselves as a servant or slave of God. And he twins it with this word apostle, verse 1. An apostle is someone who is sent. Paul is saying, I am authorized by Christ Jesus to speak on his behalf. I've been set apart, called for, verse 1, the gospel of God. Children, you know what gospel means? Gospel just means good news. God has got good news for the world, says Paul. That, that is incredible, isn't it? If you're new to Christianity, you're not sure about God. How wonderful to know that he's got good news for us. Every time you turn on the television, it is terrible news, isn't it? During COVID, I just stopped listening to the news and watching it. I knew terrible things were happening, but I, just, I felt like I just don't need to know how many more people have died today or how many more. It is bad. I know it's bad. But after a while, I just, or at least I felt, I just can't take any more. And it feels... It feels as if you just bounce from bad news to bad news, doesn't it? Uh, I read earlier this week a little news article that was saying that for, for Brits, at least, for, for people who are living in Britain, they reckon the years 1997, 2000 were the, the kind of golden age recently. Because during that time, it seemed that nothing too bad happened. <laughs> We'd managed to finish our sort of other wars. We're pre-September the 11th. Financially, things were going well. Economically, things were going well. We had a three or four year period where you know, the news wasn't so bad. And someone has gone through and sort of researched the major news stories of those days. And, and quite often they were having to come up with just daft stories to fill the news programmes because there were no tragedies to report. But more or less since then, we've just bounced from financial crisis to war to terrorist attack to pandemic to a new war. I've got good news, says Paul. God has good news for you. But the perhaps surprising thing or striking thing is that this good news from God is going to come, says Paul, through me. 
How should good news come from God? Surely he'd do something, something impressive. It's the God of the universe. He made the stars, the oceans, the mountains, the creatures that dwell within them. Surely he's got a better way of announcing his news than through one little man, Paul. Paul says, no, this is how it's going to work. This is how God has decided to act. Listen to me, and you're actually hearing God as he speaks to us through Christ Jesus, Paul says. Children, this letter is from Paul, certainly, but really behind that, and more significantly, it is from the Lord Jesus Christ, from God's throne to the Romans, and as we kind of sit down the centuries behind them, to us. We're hearing the voice of our God. If you want to hear good news, come to Paul. And therefore, this letter is going to have all sorts of things that at times confuses us, at times perhaps even angers us, certainly challenges us. But what is vital is we don't dismiss it as Paul's thoughts about God. That is so often in, in, in the modern day, and even, dare I say, in the modern church, how Paul's letters are taken. Here is one man's opinions, his experience of faith. But they're not for me. I prefer John or Peter, Mark, Luke. No, this is Christ speaking. One other commentator on Romans who wrote just volumes. I've not even started to read it. I'm not going to read it. Wrote absolute volumes. He's one of the kind of greatest theologians of the 20th century. And he had the humility to say this, speaking about himself in the third person, because that's how people wrote in those days. He promised that he will, moreover, always be willing to assume that when he, this great scholar, fails to understand, the blame is his, not Paul's. That is a good attitude. The rest of the commentary, frankly, isn't very good. But that is a good attitude. When we get stuck, when something challenges us, whose fault is it? Or who's mistaken it? Or who is wrong, to put it really bluntly? Paul or us? Really, we're asking God or us. Christ or us. And it's not just Paul, is it? See verse 2? This gospel, this good news that Paul is writing, is actually promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel is there in the Old Testament. The Holy Scriptures are the writings of the Old Testament children. Uh, When God spoke in the Old Testament days, he spoke through these prophets. These people who were authorised to speak for God, just as the apostles are in the New Testament. But these prophets now are written down. And so all the way through the Old Testament, by far, children, the longest part of the Bible, the Old Testament, it is all speaking about the gospel, about Christ. I wonder if you saw the the Queen's Jubilee Parade, or if you've seen any of the parades the Queen ever comes in. Where is she in the parade? When she gets in her gold carriage, where does she come in the parade? She's also at the back, isn't she? So it'll start with some policemen on motorbikes. Then you might get some soldiers marching, you know, with their, and, and some bands and twirling their stick and hitting the drums. Then you get some soldiers riding, riding on their horses. You might get some of the other royal family. There's you know, William and Harry. And, and then Charles a bit further back, because he's kind of more important than William and Harry. He's next in line. And then right at the back, last of all, comes the queen. The more people in front, the more glory for the person at the end. Okay, when I go to London... Nothing. Children, have you ever been to London? Does anyone trumpet your way in? No. Some of you see me arrive at London. What happened? Nothing. Get off of the train. King's Cross, nothing. I have no significance, no importance. 
Jesus comes at the end of a long line of heralds and messages and tr- messengers and trumpeters, all of whom are speaking about him. So children, let, let me give you some Old Testament books. There's a book of Haggai. Can someone tell me what the book of Haggai is about? Okay, another one, Nehemiah. No, parents, what are you doing? Two chronicles. Nahum. Nothing. Yes, most of my children, by the way, so I'm, I'm humiliating my own children, not anyone else's. I'm not surprised you don't quite know the answer to that question, but let me tell you what all those books are about. Let me tell you the cheat answer. They're all about Jesus and the gospel, ultimately. They tell their own stories. They speak in their own ways. Some of them are poetry. Some of them are prophets. Some of them are stories. But they're all about Christ. Every book of the Bible is about Christ and the gospel. And therefore, when we read it or teach it or seek to understand it, we've not yet understood it until we've understood how it speaks of this good news. So let's not think Old Testament, bad, scary, different God. New Testament, nice God who I like, Jesus. There is one God, one gospel, one salvation all the way through. What changes is not the content of the message, but the clarity. I don't know if people still have them, but my, my granny's house, when, you, when you, you, um, you went into a lounge, she had one of those lights where you, you press the button and the lights don't just click on. They have those kind of dimmer ones that you turn. Do they, I don't know if they're still around or not. Uh, and you, you turn the lights on. And you, as you turn it, it slowly gets lighter and lighter and lighter in the room. That, that is like the Bible. Okay, the light is always there. But as time goes on, as the story goes on, more and more light uh, is shed. So says Paul, if you want to hear the good news, come to me, and it is written down. Now, some of you have been Christians many, many years, and you can sort of nod along with everything I've said. Yes, we mustn't make the Old Testament the new enemies. Yes, we mustn't make Jesus and Paul enemies. Yes, it's all the word of God. Amen, amen, amen. But just just take a beat. Do our lives really show that we believe that God has got good news and that it's contained in writings like Romans. This is the most wonderful thing we could ever hear. How do we approach Sunday sermons? How do we approach midweek Bible studies? How do we approach looking at the Bible ourselves at home? It can feel, if we're honest, a chore, a burden, a duty. And duty is no bad thing in its place. But it's full of good news. One great thing to pray as we look over these next few Sundays at the first few chapters of Romans at least it is for the spirit to excite us with the good news contained and to actually see that, that here hidden in such inauspicious such unpromising looking territory just printed words on a piece of paper is the most astounding news the world has ever heard it will not come to you with angels and trumpets it is very unlikely to come to you in some sort of extra spiritual sort of blessing or dream God's news comes through Paul as he writes. Who will be hearing? Paul, yes, but ultimately God through Christ. Second question, who will we be hearing about? Who will we be hearing about? Verses two through four this time. And again, the answer is pretty obvious. Sorry, it's verse three and four. This gospel concerns God's son. Do you see that verse three? God's son, children. The good news, before it's about us, or what it does to us, or what it does for us, is about Jesus, God's son. And we're being reminded straight away that Jesus, the son, is divine, is God. 
Um, children, sons, are, have the same nature, are the same thing, to put it crudely, as their fathers, aren't they? Okay, if, you're a, if you're a human and you have a son, absolutely dead cert, that son is going to be a human. Okay? Jesus-y biology is where I stepped out, tapped out, but even I know that. If hamsters have sons, they are hamsters. If rabbits have sons, they're rabbits. When God has a son, that son is divine, is God. Now, there's a difference there. God didn't give birth to Jesus, the son. Jesus is eternal, just like God, because God's very nature is to be eternal. He had no beginning. So to be God, you have to have no beginning. Therefore, God the son had no beginning either, just like the father and just like the Holy Spirit. I know already, mind blown. How does that work? Don't know, can't explain it. But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit One God, three persons, each fully divine. Nothing is true of the Father that is not true of the Son, apart from the fact that one is Father and one is Son. So God himself, God the Son, what does he do? What is the good news? Again, it goes in a direction that that would have surprised people and should still surprise us, even though we've probably got a bit used to it. What does he do? Verse 3, he's descended from David. David was a king in the Old Testament days, a human being. This good news is going to be about the fact that God the Son became God the man. Who made Mary the mother of Jesus, children? Who made her? God did. God, Father, Son, and Spirit made Mary. Who made Jesus? At least Jesus as man. Mary did in her womb. God the Son becomes a real man. He remains God, but at the same time, he becomes a real man. Mary's maker is made by Mary. Truly God and truly man. He becomes one of us. That is, that is again, it's staggering. We're so used to it, it's staggering. I wonder if there are things that you think are below you. Maybe you work in a, a company or an office and there are some things that that is not for me. Some jobs are, are, are below you. you know, for the first time we've got an assistant minister. I'm never going to have to make a coffee again. It's absolutely incredible. It's just too... Um, imagine going to the angel Gabriel, okay, one, of the, one of the only angels named in the, in the Bible. Going to him in his blazing glory. When he appears, people tend to fall down in terror. But going to him and saying, look, I need you to clean the toilets at church. You would not dare, would you? But here's the son of God who is infinitely higher and holier and more powerful and more glorious than Gabriel, becoming infinitely lower than a toilet cleaner. Gabriel turning into a woodlouse is nothing compared to the son of God becoming one of us in order that he might rescue us. It shows his commitment to us too. Is, is God really committed to saving human beings? Does he really want to save us? Well, so much does he want to save us that he became one of us. We are the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. He descended, said Paul, from David, a real man, according to the flesh. But by being descended from David, he is a, a king too, a human king. David was not just a human being, but a 
a king in the Old Testament days, and God promised that his children would be on the throne forever. And that, I think, is what's going on in verse 4. It can read strangely, can't it? In verse 3, we read about Jesus' birth, his coming. He's descended from David according to the flesh. And then in verse 4, he's declared to be the son of God in power, according to the, the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. What's going on there? If we're not careful, we could read that as saying he started off as just a descendant of David, just a human being. And then when he rose from the dead, God made him into the son of God. He became God when he rose from the dead. Started off just man and then became God. That is definitely not true. That's why Paul starts by calling him the son who became flesh. He starts in glory, humbles himself to the manger. But then Paul says he's raised up and becomes the son of God in power. It's all kind of one phrase. The son of God in power. What's going on? Keep your finger in Romans 1 and flick back, if if you like, to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Page 259. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 13. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 13. And what is happening here, page 259, what is happening is that David has been crowned king and he's he's speaking about God's promises to him. We're not going to read all of it by any means, but verse 13. Oh, sorry, verse 12. God speaking to David says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, David, I'll raise up your offspring, your sons after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Your son, David, is going to be my son, says God. And from then on, throughout the Old Testament, these just human kings, David and Solomon and on and on from then, although they're just human, just like you and me, they have the title of being the son of God doesn't mean they're divine it means they're the king the son of david is the son of god we we could read on uh, to psalm 2 where god promises to his son uh, that he will enthrone him on the mountain of jerusalem ultimately symbolic of heaven but he'll enthrone him and the nations will come and bow before him In 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, one day, one of your sons, who is also going to be my son, will rule forever. His kingdom will have no end. And that promise is developed on and on throughout the Old Testament. And that, I think, is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. At the resurrection, Jesus, as man, becomes the son of God, meaning descendant of David, who's going to rule the nations forever. At his resurrection, it's like his crowning. In fact, that word declared to be the son of God is usually, in fact, everywhere else, I think, in the New Testament, is is translated as appointed to be the son of God. So as Jesus comes out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, it's like his crowning ceremony. Children, you might know there was a gap between the queen becoming queen and her actually being crowned. So she became queen the moment her father died. And she was on tour in, in, I think, South Africa, somewhere in Africa anyway. And she was queen straight away, but she wasn't crowned. Jesus, in one sense, was always the king. He was descended from David. From his birth, he was the king. But he wasn't crowned until the resurrection. And from now on, God says, I'm going to rule the world through this man, this God man. 
Sorry, this gospel contained in this book is going to be all about Jesus, the son of God, who became one of us, died for us, rose again, and now brings in this whole new phase of history, begins the new creation. It's incredible news, and news that again comes by reading or hearing the scriptures. We need it, and yet we're so inattentive, aren't we? There would be some news that would really capture your attention. It'll be different for all of us. If you're into sport and your phone pinged later with the BBC Sport app and, I don't know, your team has just bought the the multi-million striker. You're hugely into politics and you're desperate to know, is it going to be Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak? I I don't know what it would be. The the new series of Lord of the Rings or whatever on earth it is um, has, has got to be gripped by this. And some of it is is because what dominates our ears is frankly just not the Bible, it's not the scriptures, is it? Children, imagine your ears with doors, okay? Imagine your ears with doors flapping on hinges. What goes in those doors most often? Is it your favourite TV show? Favourite music? Are there people who are most important to you? What goes flapping in those doors, in and on? It's feeding your mind. What we pour in shapes us. And we tend to get most excited by what we hear most. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you need to sort of hear three hours of the Bible every day, although it wouldn't do you any harm. But that's not quite what I'm saying. Rather, our, our, our excitement, our desire, even if our excitement isn't there, our, our desire and our acknowledgement of what we need to be excited about, even if we're not, ought to be fixed on hearing this good news that is contained in such, again, unpromising-looking places. Just words on a page. But that is how God wants to speak to you. If you want your heart to be renewed, if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to grow in faith and confidence, it is this way and no other. This is how the Holy Spirit works. This is how King Jesus on his throne renews people through the gospel that is preached by Paul and his fellow apostles. Christ is on the throne. He is speaking. And this is how. It's mad to live for any other king. But the world, the TV, the radio, the music, your friends, your colleagues, the corporate culture, everything will call you to live for other kings. You cannot see Jesus on the throne. You didn't see the resurrection. You won't until you die. So listen, says Paul. Listen. And that'll help you live for this king. Why will we be hearing? Just very quickly as we round up, why will we be hearing? We thought of who and what, why will we be hearing? Well, it's verses five through seven. Through whom, says Paul, through Jesus, we've received the grace and apostleship. I think that means the grace, the kindness of being an apostle. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. This letter, says Paul, as you hear it, will bring about the obedience of faith. What does that mean? It is a phrase that could be taken in a couple of ways. Let me tell you what I think it means. I think it means this, the obedience... That is faith, as in the obedience that consists of faith. A bit like if you talk about a drink of water. You're not talking about two separate things. You're talking about a drink of water, a drink that consists of water. The second word explains the first or or elaborates the first. In other words, what are we being called to? We've been called to obedience. What does obedience look like? Putting your trust in Jesus as king. And through this letter, faith is going to be a huge theme. 
Not because faith, we'll come back to this so many times, I hope. Not because faith itself is something we bring or we're called to do. Everybody has faith. It's not really a thing at all. It's rather about the object. Who are you trusting? Yourself, some other God, or, or Christ? It's about the object of faith, not the subjective kind of experience of it, as it were. Uh, this phrase, the obedience of faith, comes at the end of the letter in chapter 16 as well. So at the start and the end of the letter, we won't turn it up now, that Paul says the same thing. This is all about the obedience of faith. This is what Romans is going to be about. And because Romans is so full of the importance of faith in Christ, I think that is what it means. Let me give you just one verse. Chapter 10 and verses 16. Uh, just let me read it to you. Chapter 10. Paul is asking, why have other people not believed? And he says this. They, that's Israel, have not obeyed the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, Paul goes on. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? You obey the gospel by leaving it. That is what Paul is going to call you to. Faith that grows and grows. Now, it is also true, by the way, and this could be what the phrase means, the obedience of faith is also true that when you believe, it leads to obedience. That is true. Okay, so they're not really enemies. You know, in one way, you don't have to choose. Maybe, maybe Paul used the phrase ambiguously, deliberately to mean both. Don't know. Don't know. Hard to be absolutely sure. But both are certainly true. And just because of that verse in Romans 10, and just because of the weight of the letter, I think probably that the primary call is he is calling you to trust this king who is crowned, to give your life to none other. And of course, that'll work its way out in obedience. What do you need to know? Well, it's all there in verse 7. If you're going to grow in faith, you need to know you're loved by God. You know that? So simple, so hard to believe. You're loved by God, church. Not tolerated, but loved. That he's given grace to you. That this love comes to you not because of anything you've done, not on the strength of your faith or your repentance. It comes to you graciously, freely as a gift. Just come and he'll welcome you and love you. And it leads to peace. The third gift. God, who should have been your greatest threat, becomes your greatest blessing. God, who should have been an avenger and a judge, becomes your father. Sin, the devil, and death that should have terrified you no longer need to because you have peace with God through Christ who has triumphed. The gospel is all about Christ. Before it's about you, before it's about making me feel fulfilled or making me healthy, wealthy. Long term, it'll do all those things. Certainly when you die, it'll do all those things. But it's about Christ, his love, his grace, his peace. And it's contained in this book. It's contained as a jewel in this letter. Children, as we close, let me tell you. Do you want to know how to rob my burgle my parents' house? Should I tell you how if you do if you burgle my parents' house, granny's house, for those of you who are my children? Okay, let me tell you the, let me tell you the, the, the answer. I'm not going to tell you where the key's hidden. It's not going to make it too easy. But once you break in, there is on, on, on granny's bookshelf a book. It's an old book, it's got a brown cover and kind of... Um, not really gold, but got a gold-shaped kind of spine on it. it. Looks very boring. Granny's got a lot of books. It looks very boring. You wouldn't notice it. But if you were to pull that shelf off the book, or that book off the shelf, rather, when they're away on holiday, and you were to open it up, you would find it has no pages. It's a trick book. It is a book for hiding things in, for hiding jewels in, or things you want to squirrel away so the burglars don't find them. Looks just like a book, but contains riches. That's Romans, says Paul. It's not just a letter. It's not just ink on a page. This is the news that transforms not just Augustine's and Luther's and Wesley's, but you and me, men and women. 
nothing could be better news. So let's approach it expectantly, prayerfully, humbly, but with great excitement as the Lord Jesus on the throne does good to his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we stand at the bottom of this mountain range and we, uh, we confess as much in Paul's letters that, that confuses us much that we don't understand, but we long to grow in faith. We praise you that Jesus is on the throne, that there is good news from heaven. Pour your spirit on us through your word that we might grow in faith of this love you have for us, the grace, the freedom of your good news and the peace we can have in Christ. Bless your church by the power of your spirit, we pray in his name. Amen.